Welcome to Practical Christian Living. God has for you, Christian, a jealousy that is a righteous jealousy. When we are fond of the things of the world, God wants us to have our greatest desire to be Him and our greatest passion to be Him. And like a husband or a wife that would have a proper jealousy towards someone that would be trying to to get involved with your spouse. So when we embrace the world, there's a jealousy that God feels. We serve a jealous God, but not jealousy like this world knows. It is a righteous jealousy. God loves us so much. We are the bride of Christ. We are to have no other true love in our lives other than our Savior. He's supposed to be our everything. May the things of this world never draw our eyes and hearts away from the one who loves us unconditionally and pours out his grace upon us. With James chapter 4, 7 through 10, here's Robert Furrow. Father, we want to thank you for the book of James. It it is a heavy book. James is a, he's a serious pastor, seems somber, but he's dealing with issues in the early church that he really feels strong about. And even as we are struck by the weightiness of the words that he uses, we want to come back with a heart that is ready to respond and say, Lord, help us to not be fond of the world or friends of the world. But help us to be those that see the world exactly as it needs to be. And that is that we are called to represent you to this dark and lost world. And we pray that you would bless this study. Fill us with your spirit. Let us gain from this text exactly what you want us to gain. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The passage that we come to now is the application James has been discussing different ways in which we can test ourselves to see if our faith is genuine. And now he comes to the place where he gives us 10 commands in a row. They are 10 quick commands, if I've counted the number correctly. And I want to come back to verse 6, which we already covered, but we'll cover it again today, to begin to get these commands. He says, Actually, it's verse 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. I want to start with a confession today. I am not the man that I want to be. I'm not always the the Christian that I should be. Sometimes my first reaction to things are petty. Sometimes my first thoughts are selfish. And maybe I'm being generous with myself when I say, sometimes. Maybe I should say, most of the time. My first reaction is petty. Most of the times, my thoughts are selfish. I struggle with self-seeking. Sometimes I'm lazy, and sometimes I'm too ambitious. Sometimes I'm too much of a go-getter, and sometimes I'm not enough. And I think that as I 
give that list of things that I struggle with, I think you struggle with them too. The reason that I think that is because the Bible tells me that no temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. That is, you and I have a common lot together. You say, well, I struggle with alcohol and my wife doesn't, so we don't have that in common. Yeah, but you struggle with things, don't you? You struggle probably with more things than you're willing to admit. And when you boil down what you struggle from, they're all made up of the same pieces. Whether you struggle with lust, whether you struggle with alcohol, whether you struggle as being a malicious gossip, whatever it is you struggle with, it all comes down to that pettiness. It all comes down to that selfishness. It all comes down to struggling for our own desires. It all comes down to the same things. Our sins are made up of the very same things. And so when James turns to the church and calls them adulteresses to God. Now remember, the book of James is written to a very Jewish group of people who have become early Christians before they were even called Christians. James is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. There has been a persecution led by Saul of Tarsus, who later would become one of the apostles. But the church has been dispersed out of Jerusalem because of this persecution. And it is spread around the world. And I think it's by design. It's God's plan. He has sent them out into the world by being dispersed by this persecution. Jesus told them that he knew that it was going to happen to them. Now they're living in these pockets around the world and the world is having its influence in them. Whether they're living in Corinth or whether they're living in, in parts of Turkey, whether they're over in what is Syria today, they're living in cities. They've moved into areas where there are Jewish populations because remember, Christianity in the very beginning days was almost a, a, a sect of, of Judaism. They didn't quite know what to do with Christianity. Do we still go to the temple? Do we still partake of these Jewish things? And what do we do with the Gentiles that get saved? Do we make them get circumcised? Do we make them become Jewish? They didn't know. When the book of James is written, none of these things are worked out yet at all. But the world is having its influence upon the church. And that is not unique to the first century. The world is having its influence on us as well. And so we read what becomes the heaviest passage in the book of James last Wednesday night. And we covered it. And it seemed like the more that we studied it, the more somber we became. And I, I, I don't think that that was us. I think it's the Spirit of God really convicting us that friendship with this world puts us at odds with God. And I want to quickly read the first six verses. I, I read from six to ten, but I want to quickly read the first six verses because I think the setting is just too important for us to understand what's being said. So in verse four, he says, where do wars and fights come from among you? There's a lot of bickering and fighting going on in the church. And he says, where do they come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and you war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss, wanting to spend it on your own pleasures. 
adulterers and adulteresses. In the original, it's just adulteresses. Those that make the versions of the Bible felt uncomfortable calling men adulteresses. But we're the bride of Christ. And when we get caught up in the world, it is being an adulteress to God. Do you not know that friendship with this world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world, and the word there is phileo, whoever wants to be friendly, brotherly love with this world, makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit uh, who dwells in us yearns jealously? That is, that God has for you, Christian, a jealousy that is a righteous jealousy. When we are fond of the things of the world, God wants us to have our greatest desire to be Him and our greatest passion to be Him. And like a husband or a wife that would have a proper jealousy towards someone that would be trying to, to get involved with your spouse. So when we embrace the world, there's a jealousy that God feels. God said, I am a jealous God. And then he says, but he gives more grace. All you need to do is repent. God gives more grace. More than what? More than he's given before. Always more. He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And in that, he introduces what we must do. We must humble ourselves before God. We have been too fond of the world. We have been too involved in the things of the world. And there is a jealousy that God has. Therefore, humble yourself before God. Now, this particular passage, verses 7 through 10, have caused a problem for some in, in certain theologies. To me, theology almost always has a problem with Scripture. Doesn't matter to me what theology you have. A theology is simply the desire to put the scriptures into some kind of order, into some categories, to try to make sense of, of what the Bible says. The thing is, is that theology is not inspired. It may indeed be based on inspiration. There may be principles of theology that are based on inspiration, but it's not inspired. That's why I'm so glad that I am not a theologian. That we don't have a theology that we follow. Because I, I don't want us to follow a theology. I want to know what the Bible says. And I want to know why God said what he said. I want to properly interpret what he meant when he said it. And then I want to live it. I don't have a system of theology that I'm trying to defend. Well, there's a certain theology, reformed theology which says that man can't choose to be saved, but God chooses him. Despite the fact that the Bible is full of invitations. The Bible says in Deuteronomy, choose you whom you're going to serve this day, whom you're going to serve. The Bible says, choose life and live. Jesus said, come unto me, all of you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Their theology says that once you're saved, then you can never be lost. Their theology even goes deeper than that. It's really not an issue of once saved, always saved. It's even deeper than that. It's an issue of from the foundations of the world, the saved person has been chosen and can't be lost. Before you were saved, you were really saved. 
Because God chose you before the foundations of the world and has kept you and will keep you all the way through. And then the bad part or the bad news of that theology is that if you're lost, you've been lost since the foundations of the world and you can't be saved. And if you're saved, you can't be lost. So now what do they do with a passage that suddenly says to Christians, obviously Christians, because that's who James is written to, what, what do they do with the passage that says you need to turn to God, you sinner, that says to these people, repent, they have to say, well, this isn't written to Christians. This is written to non-believers. They'll say, well, in these pockets of different churches, early Jewish Christian kind of churches were tares and wheat. And that these three verses, seven through 10, are not written to the believers, but they're written to the non-believers. So that this is an invitation for salvation, not an invitation for the church to get things right. Because these verses contain problems for certain theologies. Here's the thing. When you've got to start getting rid of context and entering new context in order to make it fit your theology, maybe it's time to abandon your theology. <laughs> because he's not writing the book of James to non-believers. He's writing the book of James to believers. And it's a stretch to say he is only writing these things to the non-believers that were in the churches. He's writing them to all of us. To say that here is to say that the whole book is written to the non-believers in our midst. How much have we learned? How much have we drawn close to Christ because of what we've studied here in the book of James? And now all of a sudden to say it's not for us. You can't just get to these three verses and say these aren't for the church, they're for non-believers, and say the rest of the book is for believers. All of a sudden you start picking and choosing in order to try to take something and fit it into your theology. It's the wrong way to go at it. The right way to go at it is to go, I don't understand how God chose me before the world was founded and I had a choice to choose Christ. I don't understand it. Now I've had people over and over again, give me what they think their understanding is, but I haven't heard something that's sufficient for me. I don't understand how Jesus says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, but also said, choose you this day whom you will serve. I don't understand how it all works. I don't know. But what I do know is that I believe it. I believe that God chose me before the foundations of the world. And I believe God's foreknowledge is somehow involved in it. Because it says in Romans 8, 29, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined that he could bring us to the likeness of Christ. That is, he knew the decisions we would make and he chose us because of the decisions that we made. Does that answer all the questions in the difficulties between God's choosing and our choosing? Nope, not at all. And I'm not claiming they do but I think that God and the things of God are transcendent to some degree. They're beyond our understanding. All we can do is read the scriptures and go, that is true, and I believe it. Why would the Bible be full of invitations if invitations meant nothing? Why would we be called to follow them if invitations meant nothing? And then how would I even come to Christ if God didn't draw me? So God has to draw me. And then I respond to invitations. And they, they work together. But these verses are for us. These verses aren't for those few of you that might be tares here. Although if you are tares here, these verses will bring you into the kingdom of God. These verses will tell you what you need to do in order to be saved. 
but they are for us as Christians every bit as much as a letter that I'm going to read you out of the book of Revelation near the end of this study. So let's break down these 10 commands. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. God gives more grace. Therefore, submit to God. The first of the commands. It's a military word. Last week, we talked a little about it. It's a word we don't like. When we hear submit, we think of a dog for some reason. But that's not the word. We think, you know, the Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands. And the wives go, "Uh uh-uh. He's submitting to me. He ain't getting that boat. Ain't gonna happen. The Bible does say submit therefore to one another. In the text on families, by the way, in the same context, submit therefore to one another. And I do think that husbands are to submit to their wives. Sometimes the wives have things right and need to be submitted to. But it's, it's a military rank. Some say, well, well, God saw men as being better than women. Do you think in a military rank, do you think that the general is better than the private? Do you think that the colonel is not as good as the general? Well, it has nothing. The rank has nothing to do with the person. The private may be a far better person than the general. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with just rank. That's all. But this is a military word that says submit to God. It's you and I as Christians saying, it's not about what I want. It's not about what I want to do. It's about what God wants. Jesus said, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll save it. As we surrender to him and to his will and his way, we find life. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. The first thing we must do if we are too fond of the world is to submit to God. And then I love resist the devil and he'll flee from you. That's spiritual warfare. A lot of people want to, how do we fight against the devil? How do I have spiritual warfare? In the church that I attended that I met Lisa in, they would do spiritual warfare by saying the word rad, rad, rad over and over again. Sometimes to music. They'd be playing the music and then everybody in the room would go rad, 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 rad. I don't know that that was spiritual warfare. But when you resist the devil, when you're tempted and you say no and he flees from you, that's spiritual warfare. I think that when, if Satan is effective in his temptation, then he's, why not continue to tempt you? But if it's ineffective, he'll flee from you like he did with Jesus. When he couldn't get Jesus to fall and Jesus said, leave me, the Bible says Satan left for a more opportune time. So we must always stay on our guard. If Satan tempts us and we resist it, he'll come back at us another way. We need to resist him again but therefore submit to God. It also tells us that in this whole scenario of being friends with the world and uh, becoming enemies of God and causing God this jealousy, that Satan is involved in it. That spiritual warfare is involved in it. That Satan wants you worldly. He wants you to care more about the things of this world than you care about the things of God. So you resist the devil and he will flee from you and then draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I don't know that there is a greater promise in all of the pages of Scripture than that promise. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. One of the things that Billy Graham used to say, every crusade that I ever listened to him preach, he said this at one point or another, call out to God and He will answer you, the Bible says, he would say. Call out to God and He will answer you. That's a great promise, isn't it? 
But this promise, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You say, I want to know God. I want to know him more. I want to know him better. I want to have a relationship with him. What do I do? You draw near to him and he'll draw near to you. And you say, well, how do I draw near to him? Well, I'm glad you asked because the rest of the passage tells us how to do it. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, draw near to God, because then we might think, well, what it means is I need to fast more, or I need to pray more, or I need to go to church more. I need to become more religious. I need to dress more religious. I need to smell religious. I need to walk religious. And we can easily become confused. We can think those are things that bring us to God when prayer isn't to make you more spiritual, but prayer does make you more spiritual. Reading the Bible isn't so that you can have a greater standing in front of God, but the more you read the Bible, the more you learn what it really means to draw close to God. What, what reading the Bible and praying should do is take away spiritual pride. Often what it does do is increase someone's spiritual pride. How come people don't pray as much as I do? How come people don't read their Bible as much as I do? Well, look at these people. They're so far from God. I'm so close to God. And God now says to you, prideful, religious, prideful person, I'm going to bring you down. I'm going to take you out because I am now against you. I don't want God against me. And so he now gives the rest of these commandments which tell us how to draw near to God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. How do we do that? And this again is to the church. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's the, the first problem for those in Reformed theology. Sinners. How could he say to Christians, sinners? You know why? Because some Christians have unconfessed, unrepented sin in their lives. Unconfessed, unrepented, harbored sin in their lives. What do I mean by harbored? It means that you've got it tied up to the dock. You're not always on that boat, but it's there and you can climb on it when you want to confessed and repented sin when the ropes have been cut from that dock is someone who says, Lord, I want to give you what's right. I want to give you purity. I want to give you righteousness. I struggle. The Bible says God knows our weaknesses and out of our weaknesses, we can be strong. He knows that we are made out of dust. He knows our humanness. He knows our passions, but we can cleanse our hands as sinners and we can purify our hearts And how is it that we cleanse our hands and purify our hearts? Well, we cleanse our hands by getting rid of the things that we need to get rid of. You're struggling with getting drunk? Then go pour out your alcohol. When I was a youth pastor, one of the kids in the youth group found his dad's pornography. And his dad attended the church. The kid was devastated by what he found and saw he was probably 13 years old at the time, 12, 13 years old. So I called the dad in and sat down and he said, yeah, it's mine. And I said, okay, well, you know, what are you going to do? I'm the youth pastor at Calvary and Albuquerque. And he said, well, I, you know, I, I, I have a peel box and I get the pornography sent there and I get it. So my wife doesn't know where it's at. I said, well, you need to get rid of the peel box. You need to do whatever you got to do to cancel Playboy to come to your, your peel box. And he said, but they won't give me a refund. 
Why, why are we thinking about a refund at all? You ought to pay them money to take it back. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.